If you have your, your Bibles, our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, that's on page 977 of our Pew Bible. And uh, again, so if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you should be able to find one in the chair in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible that's in a comprehensible translation, you're welcome to take one of ours. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know this fall we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And each week we've been looking at different angles of this question. What does this book of Ephesians say to us as a people about becoming, our church, about becoming a community of grace? Or becoming more of a community of grace? That would be something that would be more and more real for us as a church. So that's kind of the overarching question we're looking at. We're going to read this morning. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 16. And then we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at all those verses. We're going to look specifically at 1 through 6, but I'd like to read the whole passage this morning. So let's, let's read together, and first let's pray. Please pray with me. Father, this is your word, and so we open it um, looking to you to hear your voice. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. For many of us, it's, um, it's been a week where it's been hard to hear your voice. For many of us, it's been a week when we've tried not to hear your voice. We pray by your Spirit that you would open us up to hear what you've got for us. Lord, we thank you that by your Spirit, you really do reveal yourself to us here in your Word. So we just ask that you would do that for us because we are in need of you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, I... Therefore... I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean, that, but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we mentioned last week as we came to the end of chapter 3 that we were coming to a hinge in the book. We were coming to a transition. Paul spent the first three chapters talking about, look at what God has done for you. Look Look at what He's done for you in Christ. He's made you into new people. From, the very begin- from before the beginning of time, God was at work in His plan to bring you to Himself. 
again and again he's hitting at what has God done for us. And he, and he comes to this focal point at the end of chapter 3 where we were last week where he says, Here's, let's boil it down to this. Here's the one thing I'm praying for you. Here's the essence of what I'm praying for you. That you would know that God loves you. So that's what I want you to get. That's what I want you to know. Now, at this point in the letter, he now turns to, let's start talking about the ways this love of God in your life is going to spill out into your life. Let's start talking about, we've, he's laid this, this foundation of, here's what it means to be in Christ. Here's what it means to be in relationship with God. And now he says, let's start talking about what it looks like to live out that faith. He ends in three saying, I want you to know that you're loved. And now he's going to start talking and spend the rest of the book talking about, here's what it means to actually love each other. Um, and here's the one thing we're going to look at today from verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Uh, if our church is going to be a community of grace and continue to grow as a community of grace, then we're going to have to be a unified church body. Okay, that's, that's Paul's point here in this passage. He's talking about unity within the body of Christ. Now you can look at that in kind of the broad spectrum of what does it mean that, that there are churches all over our town, that there are churches all over the world. What does it mean for us to be united with other Christians? This passage speaks into that, but what I want to look at specifically is um, the more immediate concern. What does it mean for us as one particular local body of Christ? What does it mean for us um, to, be more, to be more unified, to value what Paul says we ought to value? So if that's the point that we have to be a unified body, we're going to just look at two things today. The foundation of unity and the vocabulary of unity. Okay, foundation of unity and the vocabulary of unity. First, the foundation of unity. We're going to look at verses 1 and then skip down to 4 through 6. Verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, this calling that we've been given, this new life that we've been given in Christ. God has called us to follow him. And he's brought us into that not only as individuals, but together as the body of Christ. He says, you've been called to know and to follow God. So, he says, I want you to live a life that's worthy of that that fits with that. The, the word worthy here the, in, in the Greek, it's not so much, from what I can tell, it's not so much the sense of go earn this now, but worthy in the sense of it fits reality. It matches. It lines up with who you've been recreated in Christ to be. Okay, it says you, you're a new person in Jesus. You've been brought into this family. Now let's, see what, let's talk about what it means to live a life that's consistent with that, that's worthy of that, it's appropriate uh, uh, to that. Now, let's skip down to verses 4 through 6. Just look at what Paul says is the foundation of this unity. In one sense, he spent the first three chapters talking about this, but look at the, look at the way he boils this down for us now. He says, there is one body, okay, that's the body of believers. There's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, he's saying that this foundation of unity that we have is found in the person of God himself. We are a people that are centered around this God. He says, there is one Father. There is one Lord, speaking of Jesus. There is one Spirit, this Trinitarian God that we follow. There is one God. As one writer put it, he said, there can no more be a multiplicity of churches is that there can be a multiplicity of gods. Paul's point is that there is one God, and so there is one unified body of Christ. 
Now, as you know, one of the issues he brings up in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he speaks specifically into the situation of Jews and Gentiles. He says that the church is an ethnically um, united body, that there's no longer these distinctions between different groups of people. It's another way for him of saying all kinds of people, every kind of people, is now brought into the family of God. He says we are united because there is one God. How many faiths are there? There's one faith. This, uh, later in the, end of the service, we're going to receive new members into our church, and part of what we're going to do is we're going to baptize one of these men. There is one baptism. If you are a Christian, you've been baptized into Jesus, then what, we all share that. There is one baptism, one God and one Father of all. Uh, if you look around at most of the areas of our life and see people struggling to be unified, uh, this was kind of driven home to me a few months ago. I was I was at Lowe's, and it was about 6.30 in the morning. I can't remember what I was doing there at 6.30 in the morning, but I was at 6.30 in the morning. And I, I felt like I was privy to something that very few people in Williamsburg have probably experienced. So I'm, I'm there, and I'm, I'm walking through the aisles, and, and all the employees are, are gathered together in this circle. And they're having this morning meeting, and they end with this kind of, as I remember, this sort of responsive chant. It was like it was like this this team cheer, and I can't remember what they said, but but somehow in there, they were the they were the Lowe's team, and at 6:30 in the morning they did the team cheer. I I just couldn't have a job that involved me cheering at 6:30 in the morning, but these admirable people were doing that. And then a couple weeks later, again for some unknown reason, this must have been when Henry was very young and we were up all the time. Anyway, 6:30 in the morning thereabouts, I was at Walmart right down from Lowe's. You, some of you know what that's like. So I'm at, I'm at Walmart. In the sa- I walk in in the same thing. There are all these people gathered around in this circle having their meeting for the day and then they end with the team cheer. And at that point I realized somebody somewhere is making a lot of money having written a book about leading corporate America and your employees and giving team cheers so that you will feel unified, Right? Now, many of us have had the experience of being on sports teams, all kinds of things where where we're trying to rally around something. Um, And these were these morning pep rallies. What are they trying to do? Build a team, bring unity, rally the troops. Okay, this is going to sound a little cynically bent, but at the end of the day, for Lowe's, for Walmart, for anybody else, what, what is the rallying cry of team unity? Why do they want those people to be unified? So that they will make money for the company. Right? Nothing wrong with making money for the company. But that's what we want, right? We want a team that's going to be able to now produce. Now, Paul says, here is our rallying cry. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one God and Father of all. Here's the marked difference. Why is he rallying us together? Why does God bring us into this team, a better image? When scripture uses, why does God bring us into this family? It's not so that he can get something out of you. We're not unified by the thing that we're now called to produce. We're unified by the fact that there's one thing that God gives to us. We're unified not because we're producers, but because we're recipients. Paul reminds us of that. He says, you are unified because there's one God and one faith, and you've been brought into that. He says, you are a family now because of what God has done for you in the person of his son, Jesus. You were scattered throughout the earth. God brought you together. What binds you together? 
this one God that we follow, this one God who's given himself for us, this one God that's made us into this one thing. So in this passage, what does he say? The foundation of unity. It's what God has done for us. There is one God, and that's the God that we are following together as part of his family. Now the other half of this passage, the vocabulary of unity. Look at verses one, or 2 through 3. Uh, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What does it look like in practical ways for us to be a people who are unified? If this theological statement is true, that we have a foundation of unity, we've been brought into one people, what's that going to look like in everyday life? The vocabulary of unity. Look at the things uh, that he mentions First word he talks about is humility. Now, this was a quality that was much despised in the ancient world. You can read Greek writers who, who use this word, and they, and they use it negatively about people that are sort of subservient, no real clear sense of self. It's, it, wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a character trait that anybody recommended. It was this sort of deplorable subservience. Um, but when Scripture takes it, and you see it, as we're going to see in a minute, on the lips of Jesus, and hear Paul exhorting us to it, he says, if you're going to be a body, a united body, you're going to have to be humble. Now, not exactly what the Greeks may be pictured by that word. What is it? A quality of life that allows us to look beyond ourselves and value someone else more. An ability in life to look at ourselves soberly and honestly and value others um, a number of years ago, I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in North Carolina. I had a fellow staff worker at another school, and she, she told this story about how she was sitting down with a, um, doing a Bible study or some sort of conversation with this, one of her students. So they're talking about this, and, and this woman is, is sharing about some about what had been going on in her life, and apparently at length. So at some point in the middle of this conversation, her student, Ben Beware, okay, her student stands up, and starts running circles around her chair. And she says, she said, what are you doing? And she says, I'm revolving around you, because apparently you expect the rest of the world to do that, too. So, <laughs> that's one of the stories where you're like, it's funny to hear, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. But you can, I mean, what is, what is Paul exhorting us to? A humility, one that values other people, one that values other people more. If you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, maybe you'll remember it's um, this uh, senior tempter talking to his junior apprentice and talking about um, turning people away from humility. And he gives this example. He says, here's what God's trying to get people to be like. He says, imagine this um, master architect, okay, somebody who's, who's an architect, designs beautiful buildings, skilled in his work, and he works with another architect who designs a better building than he does, more beautiful. He says, here's what God wants that person to think. This is amazing. I'm so glad this thing was created. And it doesn't really matter to me that my friend created it rather than me. I'm just glad it exists. And the tempter says, we don't want people to think that way. 
We don't want people to be so glad that they give up their aspirations of, it was me, it was someone else, it doesn't matter. How beautiful this is. Look at this. Which comes as a, a challenge in our world of one-upmanship and uh, image. And Paul says we're going to have to be a people who are humble. Second word, he says, we're going to need to be people characterized by gentleness or sometimes translated meekness. Okay, now, when, when you hear that word, especially if you hear it translated as meekness rather than gentleness, you, you hear insipid and just weak and not something you'd really aspire to be. Okay, this word in the Greek was a word that was used... Uh, for animals who had, among other things, but for animals who had been domesticated. Okay, and if you work on a farm, and you have to plow your field, and you have an ox, what kind of ox do you want to have? I don't know what sizes oxen come in, but you want the big one, <laughs> the strong one, right? What do you, it's, it's a picture of strength that's under control. Strength that has been harnessed to good purposes. Okay, when you read gentle, when you read meek, that's what that word means. In terms of the way this word is used, only the strong can be gentle. Only the strong. In one sense, because they have a choice. Strong people can be abusive. Strength used rightly is a beautiful thing. Gentleness used within the body of Christ. Uh, relationally, a strength that's used compassionately, carefully for the good of the people around you. Uh, Jesus 11, in, in Matthew, excuse me, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, in the passage where he's talking about, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden." He says this: "Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Lowly in heart is that word humble, same word, gentle. Same word Paul is using here. When he says, I tell you to be gentle, and I tell you to be humble, I'm pointing you to Jesus, who was this for us. Can you imagine more strength than the strength of Jesus, used for good ends, harnessed, focused for the good of others? Paul says, if you're going to be a community of grace, then you're going to have to be gentle with each other. And you're going to have to be humble. Because on he mentions patience. Uh, John Stott in his commentary defines patience as this, long-suffering towards aggravating people. We're going to have to be people who are patient, slow to get angry. goes on and he talks about forbearance. The idea here is mutual tolerance, that there has to be some give and take. There has to be room to disagree on the non-essentials. And that's going to take wisdom on our part because we have to know the difference between biblical principle and personal preference. He's not saying bend on biblical principle. He's saying much of our life has to do with personal preference. And if we're going to be a united body, then we've got to give grace to each other and have room for a variety of opinions. Can you imagine any family, any team surviving without that? And then he says that we're going to have to have love. Bearing with one another in love. Uh, this is the fuel in the tank. Uh, it's the power for these other things. What's going to give you the power to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to forbear? You're going to have to have a love for each other that's more foundational than your love for yourself. And you're going to have to have a love for each other 
that is a response to the love that Paul has spent three chapters talking about, the love of God poured out into our lives. He says, now we're going to have to love each other. A familiar passage for many of us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, towards the end, Paul says this about love. He says, love is patient, it's kind. Let, Let me say this. In our culture, we tend to think about this being said at weddings. Okay, that's not the original, that works. It's not the original context. He's talking to God's people. Let me tell you what it means to love each other. Love is patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And at the end of that passage, he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's a pretty astounding statement. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, the thing that unites us, unites us to Jesus. Hope, our ability to grasp the promises of the gospel and look to him in faith. And all three important things. And what does he say is the greatest of these? Love, that you would have love for each other. Then he goes on to say that we would have an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying that we have to desire this. Unity in the Spirit, unity together. We have to desire it. We have to long for it. He's not simply saying this is important. It's vital. And it's something that we have to give ourselves to. Have you ever noticed that there's, um, there's, some, there's a weird, almost pleasure in delivering bad news? Have you ever noticed that? Because when you've got bad news to tell, you know, whether that's gossip or whether that's the facts of the day, there's, people are suddenly listening to you. You've got their attention. There's something almost addictive about that. And you've probably known people that just love to give bad news. And, and that might be why. And some of us might love to do that. Um, if you notice that many times the things that we say that work against this unity that Paul is talking about, they just have this attractive pull. It's easy to want something other than unity. It's easy to want something other than what is best for that person and for the community. And you might not think that, but, but even in small conversations, how many times do we say things that actually undermine unity rather than building it? In a million different ways, Paul says, you need to eagerly long for unity. You need to eagerly long that your body of believers would be a a group that is built up in the Lord, that's encouraged, that loves Jesus together. So that brings up the question, are these qualities that characterize our church? Again, we can talk about it globally. Let's talk about our church. Are these things that characterize us? Do your relationships with the people... Here's one question. Do your relationships with the people in the church demand that you exercise these, this list of things? Do your relationships demand that you be conversant with this vocabulary of unity? Or another way of asking that is, are you in close enough relationship with the people around you that you have to come back and use these things? Um, let me give two images of, one image of my life. Uh, Standing in the grocery store line, this was a number of years ago, when self-checkout lines were relatively a new thing, my wife was uh, 
was when we were in Philadelphia. She was, she was working every day. I was studying at school. I had a little more time, so I was the one who most often went to the grocery store. I got good at the self-checkout line. There's this day when I'm standing in our supermarket, and I'm about three people back, and the person in the line checking out their groceries was not good at it. <laughs> I don't know if this was their first time. They weren't good at it like I was good at it. And they probably weren't good at it like anybody else in the store was good at it. And there they are. They're just taking their time. And they're re-scanning. And they're hitting that button that makes the person come from the other side of the store to help you out. And I'm just, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm getting... Uh, I'm getting more and more frustrated. I'm envisioning, there's a big bank of windows in the parking lot right behind. I'm envisioning taking my cart and launching this person out of, out of, out of the way. I wish I could say I didn't picture that, but I did. You know what it's like to be in just the everyday situations of life where you have to exercise some of these things that are being mentioned. Patience, long-suffering. But you know, the thing about it is, in that grocery line, realistically, maybe it slowed me down 15 minutes, but then I was out and I was gone and I was done and I never saw that person again. What's Paul saying? If we're going to be in close relationship with people in our church, if that is our new community of people, then you're going to be needing to use these all the time if you're getting to know these people. His assumption when he pictures the church, it's not a room like this where people sit in pews on Sunday and then disperse never to see each other again. Now, they worship together. But his picture was not churches worship at 10.30 in the morning. His picture was church is the body of believers whose lives are now intertwined together. They worship together. They see each other during the week. They care for each other. If we're going to live lives like that, then we're going to need qualities like this. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love. We're going to have to have an eager desire to maintain the bond of peace. If we're going to be people in a body together and not just in line in the grocery store, then we're going to need this. They're not going to be hypothetical needs. They're going to be very real and tangible ones. Okay, just two thoughts about what keeps us from this. Uh, what are the obstacles to pursuing this? One is that we just simply don't want to mess with the mess. You know, we, we've, we've had enough relationships. We know enough people that if you start getting involved in other people's lives and really sharing your life with them, it's going to soon get messy because people's lives are messy, your own included. And we don't want to mess with mess. Those of you that have or remember a time when you had small children in your house, occasionally my wife and I will both be in the room with our kids and we will begin to smell something. <laughs> and there's a need in our family that needs to be taken care of. How tempting it is to just ignore that. Dirty diapers? No, surely not. Maybe if I ignore it, my spouse will take it. We want to. Because why? Because there are times when we don't want to mess with the mess. It's one thing to change dirty diapers. It's another thing to actually be in relationship with other people where you know, if I call that person, I know it's going to be a long phone call. If I stop and help this person, I know that their needs are more than just this one little thing. If I share with that person what's going on in my life, then people are going to know what's going on in my life. I'm not even saying gossip, but that person, somebody's going to know. They're going to care enough to ask me about it now. Am I going to get into the mess? It leads into the second obstacle. We just often don't want to be known. Um, ben mentioned, and I heard as well, just a good report from the women's retreat this weekend. And 
one of the things that I heard is they asked a few of the women to bring these shoe boxes full of items that like would tell people about their life. And at least as I understood it, they were going to take these items out and say, "Here's this says something about me. Um, I don't know what people took out of their box. I'm sure, it was, I'm sure it was a great time. I'm sure a lot of good things. But here's what you don't take out of your box. Here's, here's what I wouldn't have taken out of my box. Um, look, here's a mirror. And I use this to gaze at myself. <laughs> to remind myself that the world is about me. And I love to look in my mirror. Um, I pull out of my box. Here's a rock. And this is how hard my heart feels some days. This is how hard it seems to the people who rub up against me. And then I take out my earplugs. Because sometimes I just want to tune out to the world. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with people's needs. I want to pretend that I don't have any responsibilities. Okay, what are obstacles for us to be in this kind of community that Paul is talking about? We don't want to be known. Because as soon as I pull out that mirror, you guys start to get to know me, somebody's going to do me a favor and come over and break it. Right? Maybe we don't want to be known. If we're going to be a part of Christ's body, if we're going to step into the kind of community that Paul's talking about, then we're going to need the qualities that he lists because we're going to have to deal with people like me. Some of you will be familiar with this quote. G.K. Chesterton uh, answered a question that was put forth in the London Times, 19th century. They asked the question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote back simply, I am. I'm what's wrong with this world. Maybe if you had asked Chesterton, what is wrong with your church? He would have written back the same answer. I am. What's it going to mean for us to be people who go beyond just that and step into each other's lives that we would really have this vision of the unity and the bond of the Spirit, that God is calling us to that as a people? May he do that great work in us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Um, your people always in need of you. And Lord, we pray for our, for our church. I thank you for the, for the beautiful pockets of community that we have, for all the good things that you are doing and have done over the years in this body. Lord, we give you praise for all your goodness, and we pray that we would lean into that more. And more and more, you really would make us into a community of grace, people who love each other, people who are patient with each other, who are gentle who earnestly desire to live this communal life together because you don't mean for us to live alone. So we ask that you more and more would make us into this. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.